sometimes as Christians, we need a wake-up call. I, I think that I do too, you know. Sometimes we really need a wake-up call. And that's what Romans 13, this passage is, verses 11 through 14 that we're going to study tonight. It's a wake-up call to the fact that my life is not my own. And that there's actually, as a Christian, there's a calling upon my life that is should be an all-consuming calling upon my life. That I haven't just joined a social club as a believer. I've been given a new life in Christ and there's a there's a calling there's like a fruitfulness that God is desiring to see for his glory in my life it's this is a beautiful beautiful passage so what I want to do is just read it it's this is not like a you know you need like a careful logical teaching of this passage although I'm going to do that whether I like it or not because that's how I teach but but this is really about getting the heart of this into our hearts and so my prayer is that, that that would happen, that as we study this passage, we would get the heart of this, that the Holy Spirit intended for us to get from this passage, get it into our hearts, because we, we really need it. It says here in verse 11 of Romans 13, And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore... Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And so you immediately get like, wow, this is like, amen, brother. You know, I mean, this is like a preach it. Yes, just go out there and do it kind of passage. This is very much about application. Um, there's there's passages in Romans that are very much about sin and bringing out the sinfulness of man, showing man a mirror, basically, and that's early in Romans. Then it talks about salvation and how it's like an Old Testament reality played out in Christ, and it's really neat stuff. I mean, it's just really deep and heavy, philosophical, theological, wonderful stuff. Um, and then it gets into like other theological stuff, and it finally moves on to like our lives. And how we live the Christian life. And Paul seems to do this in a lot of his writings. Like in Ephesians, he talks about theology first and then application next. You know, the first three chapters are more theological. The last three are more application. Well, here we are. We're full application in Romans here. <laughs> like Romans 12 and on, it's like all application stuff going into our lives. So let's get not only the verse by verse of it, but let's start by getting the thrust of this. It's believers, wake up. You've got to wake up. And I cannot do this teaching justice by, except by saying, point your eyes at the text and, and try to say, Lord, help me in my heart to like receive what you're saying here with the, the sense of urgency and the sense of commitment that you're calling me to have. Um, so now let's, let's analyze this passage. It says, and do this. The do this is a reference, obviously, to something he already said. That's in verse 11. So he said earlier, the last thing he said was to love each other. That was the last thing he said. He said, love, because love does no harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is a fulfillment of the law. So he says, do this. Now, it could be that the do this is a reference to everything he said in Romans 12. It could actually be that it's a reference to other things he said throughout the book, too. But love seems to be the crowning thing that he said so far. So I think it applies to that. And of course, that probably encompasses other elements, too. So he says, do this. Now, a lot of us, we, we all think we're loving people. But we're afraid to ask other people if that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're, I think most of us would probably feel that way. Like, I'm a loving person. You're like, well, go, why don't you go ask your, your loved ones if you're a loving person? You're like, well, I don't think that would be wise. <laughs> uh, 
Um, and maybe, maybe that's why we need a verse like this, a passage like this to say, hey, maybe I think I'm being loving, but perhaps I'm not fulfilling the call of the type of love that God's calling me to give to others, because that requires a death of self. And that tends to be a rather unpleasant thing. <laughs> it does. Um, but yet it is the calling. Love is a higher and holier calling than probably most of us are current, you know, consciously aware of most of the time. Our culture waters down love to thinking that love is basically having like good motives. Um, yet yet bi- the Bible does talk about motives being important, but they're certainly not the whole story. Um, or sometimes just approving of everybody. You know, I mean, like, go tell someone you're doing something really wrong and watch how quickly they say, I support you. Because they're feeling uncomfortable about what you're doing and they just want you to know that they, they, they care about you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, well, I love you and I support you. It's interesting how we have this, like, there's a cultural thing, like a gut reaction sometimes that comes out that isn't actually very appropriate or biblical. That's not even actually the most loving thing you can do. Um, so we need, we need kind of to wake up, to look at Jesus and say, Jesus is the ultimate example of love for us, right? And here's someone who always walked in love, always walked in holiness, never compromised either one. Because that's, that's the reality of love. Re- love never compromises holiness. It, it's it's going to walk in holiness as well. And let Jesus be our example. So that's the do this, the do this. So do this. And then it brings in something new. It says knowing the time. Knowing the time. This is really, I think... To my reading, it's the first time in the book of Romans where Paul has brought up anything about what's called eschatology or the end times. Like, what's the scheme of God's revelation? What's happening next on the scene of, of, of Jesus' second coming? That sort of thing. Um, this is the first time in the book of Romans he brings it up. This is the first eschatological moment, meaning last things moment, in the book of Romans. And it's given not to be a teaching about the end times, but to be a motive for getting to the Christian life now. So the emphasis here isn't to teach about the end times, but to use that as motive. So Paul's given us a lot of good reasons to live the Christian life. And what I want to do real quick is I'm going to survey survey through, let me see, one, two, three, four, five. I'll give you five reasons in Romans that Paul's given so far as motives to live the Christian life. I think this is healthy because it's good to remember why you're doing this thing, uh, just to refresh our hearts. So here's some examples. Uh, one thing is in Romans uh, chapter 6, in fact, the whole, all of chapter 6 is motive to live the Christian life, but in Romans 6, our new nature. Our new nature is given as a reason for us to live the Christian life. In Romans 6, 10, and 11, I'll read it to you. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the motive here for living for God and being dead to sin is because I'm identifying with Christ and this new life that I've been given. Hey man, he's called me out of that. Why would I want to go back into that? He's given me, that's death, right? This is life. Why would I want to go back to death? Why, why wouldn't I want to live this life in Christ? He gives us another motive in Romans 6 verse 16. And this is, relates to the slavery of sin and the exclusiveness of picking a side. Picking a side in this battle. So Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So here's another motive for living the righteous life or the godly life. It's because I can't be like, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just going to go out there and live in sin and just be in constant sin. And it's like, you're a slave of sin. That's the, that's the choice you've made. Like we, we have to pick between sort of stark realities, two different lifestyles for God or not for God, 
slave of Christ, slave of God, or slave of sin. And so this is an ex- exclusivity thing, right? It's like, a, it's like a pick one. Whom shall you serve? Choose this day whom you will serve, as, as Moses said to the, uh, to the Israelites. So that's another, another motive, because it's kind of like someone comes up and they say, look, you can either be my friend or you can be their friend. Except in this case, one friend is wonderful and godly and awesome, and the other one is a terrorist who's trying to kill everyone. I mean, these are, these are pretty, it's slave of God, wonderful, or slave of sin, and all the results that come with that. Then there's another motive given just a few verses down in Romans 6.21. This is a motive for why we should follow Christ. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you were now ashamed for the end of those things is death? And he reminds them, reminds us, think about that ungodly life that you've lived in the past, be it for a few years or be it for a moment or be it for many, many years. Think about that and think about the fruit of that life. And then he assumes of which you are now ashamed because every Christian should be ashamed of the sins they've committed in the past. If you have no shame, probably not a Christian, but <laughs> of the things of the past, of the things of sin, I'm ashamed of those things. But he's calling to our mind, remember the shame of that. Remember the fruitlessness of that. Another good motive to follow Christ because I look back and I go, Ew, what do I want? My, do I want my future to look like that past? Is that what I want? Is that what I want? I, I don't want that shame, Lord. I don't want that shame. Um, then he also reminds us of the fruit, not only the shame, but the fruit, meaning the pain and the suffering and the consequences of sin, and which we all know well. Yep, sin has grave consequences. And so uh, another motive there. So number four, he gives us a motive of relationship. Notice that these are really different kinds of motives for living the Christian life. I think it's neat to read. It was fun to read through Romans looking for what motives has Paul given us, um, has ultimately the Holy Spirit given us. So Romans 7, 4 says, Therefore, my brethren... You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So my motive as a Christian in this verse seems to be because I have a relationship with God. I'm dead to that thing and I'm married to God. Not only slave of God, but but married to be married to him. So we are the bride of Christ. And that's different, you know, because I could think of my duties to my wife as, um, well, I'm supposed to do this because I'm her husband. Or I could be like, I'm her husband. I'm her husband. I remember the years of being single and then thinking about the importance of this thing of being a husband, seeing lazy husbands. Thinking like, if I had a wife, I wouldn't have that attitude. I'll tell you that right now, you know. And then I'm, so this is a relational motive. Of course, I'm a perfect husband in every way and have achieved and surpassed all of my expectations. Just don't ask Allison about that, please. Um, <laughs> so I haven't, but, but it, there's, there's this, in my relationship with God, see, it's not just, oh, it's all just rules. It's all just rules. Like if your walk with God is all just rules, rules, oppressive rules, that's not a walk with God. I'm to be married to him. You know, this is, this is, a, this is a whole different kind of mode of relationship. It's a relational motive and that should be chief because then everything I'm doing ultimately and it comes out to the final motive, which is love. Romans 13, 8. Where God says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So, love is the ultimate, final, and, and proper motive for a Christian who is to, to follow and serve Jesus in their life as a sold out, set apart, like on fire for Jesus, man, like serving the Lord. Not just, I have everything in its box properly, but rather, no, 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 I'm, I'm pushing forward and pressing on 
you know, for that thing for which God has laid a hold of me. So love is, again, again another motive. Perfect, beautiful, beautiful motive. But now uh, in, in Romans 13, and there may be other motives he gives in Romans. I'm not saying those are the only ones. Those are just the ones I found as I was reading through it and kind of thinking about this. But there's a new motive to consider. Paul gives us a new motive, totally different than everything he said before. And now he says, oh, and by the way, time is running out. Time is running out. So get to it. I remember being a kid, which I did for the first 30 years of my life, and then I got married. So <laughs> I remember being, though, being young and remembering the sound. And you remember this when you, when you could remember the sound of your parents' car pulling up in the driveway and you would immediately start to get your chores done? That was, that was me anyways, at least on several occasions. This is not godly, right? This is, nor was I godly at that age, to be honest. No, foolishness was bound up in the heart of this child. And, um, and I remember hearing, I'd hear the sound, and I'm thinking, I've got, you know, like 32 seconds, 26 whatever it is. I knew exactly how long I had to get up and just at least be seen in the, mo- in the movements of cleaning or doing things, you know. And so this is the thing. We as Christians... <laughs> Not that, not that our hearts should be like my heart was, but we should have this sense of urgency that's like, dude, Jesus is going to bring his kingdom in glory to this temporary place. The time is short. It should be as though I hear the sound in the driveway, you know, that he's coming. He's coming. And I don't know the timing of it, but I know this. It's short. It's short. So that, that's the point of saying the time is short. Is it's motive. This should motivate me. This should motivate me. What if I told you that the friends you have in this very room, today was the last day you would ever see them. You'll never see you. Just knowing the time was that short would change how you interacted with them. Or if, if you had three weeks left and God was taking you home, three weeks left, you'd suddenly start making lists in your head of the things you wanted to accomplish with that time. Not that you're going to personally, individually change the whole world in three weeks, but all of a sudden you'd focus on whatever influence God has given you and you'd, you'd want to push it even more and have that greater influence. So Christians should always live not, not with the awareness of death, but with the awareness of eternity and that it's quickly coming. Um, so knowing the time, knowing the time. That word time literally means season. So he's not talking about like knowing the time. Let's see, it's, you know, it's 5.58 or something like that. Rather, knowing, so you don't have to look at your watch while I'm teaching. That's okay, you don't have to do that. But, but rather knowing the season, the, the, the type of season we're in, in time. And I think as, as Christians, we're, we're, look, we're to look at this through, the, through a biblical lens. This is the eschatology part, right? We don't know when Jesus is coming. That's clear. That's clear from Jesus, right? He says, no man knows the day or the hour, although a lot of people claim that they do. And every, every blood moon that goes by, someone's saying it's the end of the world. And I can't wait for it to pass so we can start ignoring that person. Um, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. I, I don't think it's fruitful to, to speculate on the day and the hour, personally. But we know what time it is now. So I may not know when Jesus is coming back, but I know what season I'm in today. I'm in the hour before his return. I'm in the time before judgment. I am right now in the season of grace before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. That's the time it is right now. So we see this as a seasonal thing. In the garden, it was not the moments before judgment. In the garden, it was not even close to that, right? This was like, things were good. Walking in the cool of the day, man, in fellowship with God. 
in the Exodus when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt? Oh yeah, there was plagues upon Egypt, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't like God's kingdom is coming soon to this earth. That wasn't the time they were in. That wasn't the season. When Solomon's temple was built and the beginnings of really the glory, most glorious time in Israel's history were happening, that wasn't the time. That wasn't the season. When the Babylonian captivity happened, it was bad days for Israel, but it wasn't like planetary changes were going to happen at any moment kind of thing. So now it is the time. And this is, this is really what we're to, I think, how we're to process this, knowing the time, is to process not as Jesus uh, is coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back, but it's not so much about what time Jesus is coming back. It's about what time it is now. What season of sort of eschatology are we in today? So let me read to you the apostles preaching in the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 verses 30 and 31. Because they're speaking about the season of time globally in the plan of God for the timeline of, of all of history, the season that we're in today. It says here, and listen to these words. He says, truly, Paul speaking here, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Speaking now, the times of ignorance, he's referring to the the times where Gentiles all around the world were worshiping idols and pagan gods and things like that. So he says, truly, God overlooked that stuff, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. To repent. Not a popular message today. I I frequently hear pastors say, not I say frequently, but I have definitely occasionally heard pastors say things like, well, you know, that whole message of go out there and repent, that doesn't get anybody saved. I just want to say, look at the Bible, dude. <laughs> That's what Jesus preached. That's what the apostles preached. And if I'm not mistaken, people got saved or else none of us would be here today. So he says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, Jesus. He has given us assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the season we're in today is everyone get right with God. This is, this is the message. But I sense a sort of, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I sense a sort of spiritual sense of oppression upon believers, especially maybe where we live, to just be quiet about it. Just live your little Christian life and let them live their life and get along and, and get along and get along. But God commands all men everywhere to repent. The time is short. And the time is now. So this is not about the second coming. This is about the time we're in today, which is the time right before the second coming. I think some people, they have wrong ways of reacting to the second coming. They're distracted by it instead of inspired by it. Like, you know, making, in fact, this happened, uh, not, this, it happens every generation probably, where people go, you know what, I'm not going to make any retirement plans because maybe Jesus will come back before that happens. And I just want to say, you know, Jesus didn't come back or didn't give you the warning about his return so that you could become an- anxious and have anxiety and push off responsibilities. <laughs> That's not the reason why he did this. You know, there's, we should have a plan. I remember thinking, like, should I even go to college? Because the people I was around made me feel like it was going to happen so soon. What was the point? And now I'm thinking, I wish someone had come along and explained this to me a little better <laughs> from a biblical perspective when I was younger. So hopefully this helps somebody. You should be realizing what season we're in, not focusing on predicting the moment it ends. So being distracted by that second coming can be bad. Ignoring the second coming is equally bad, though, because that's the flip side of it. Oh, well, if, if Jesus might not come back till after I'm in the grave, then what am I going to worry about it for? And then there you are, what Jesus says, that wicked and lazy servant. You know, you should have done something. Um, So 
So he tells us here in Romans 13, knowing the time that it is high time to awake out of sleep. I like that phrase, high time. It is time to wake up. It is now. Sleep is an interesting analogy, and he uses it throughout this this passage in these verses. Sleep is like kind of a numb and dumb state. You know, when I go to sleep, it's kind of weird how the world shuts off to me. You ever notice that moment when you're falling asleep and all of a sudden your ears are no longer receiving input from around you? It's just like, it's interesting how sleep does that. Like I just stop hearing, I stop seeing, and I'm just out, which is, which is nice, I guess. I, don't, I wish I didn't have to sleep. I could just keep doing things all day long and night too. <laughs> but, but this is the sleep of spiritual dullness and numbness to the, aware, to the awareness of what's going on around me. Spiritually, the world is, it's, it's not, oh, doom and gloom, it's in shambles, but the world is in desperate need for Jesus Christ. It is in a desperate need, and I should be aware of those things. When I hit about the age of 17, personally, I had like an, a, a, an awakening, and my life changed so much, I wondered if I had gotten saved. <laughs> because all of a sudden, well, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, it happened sort of gradually over time, but my own radar of, of, of how much I was aware of God, thinking about God, caring about God, and a sense of a passion to, to serve him. You know that passion to like, God, I just want to serve you with everything I've got? Like, you know this, you felt this. Like, that was when I was about 17 when I started to, to feel that. And um, and I feel like Christians, we could be, maybe you're saved, but you're kind of sleeping. And maybe I could be saved, but I could be sleeping on the job, so to speak. I want to remember that passion and that, like, zeal for the Lord that was beautiful in his eyes and is beautiful to have in, in his eyes again. To feel the depravity of sin, to feel the call of God, to, to just have that passionate desire to take up my cross and follow Jesus with all I've got. So this word wake up is interesting in the Greek because it, it, it not only implies waking up like opening your eyes, but it would also be used to say, hey, get up. So you know like how when you're late to school and your mom walks in the room and she yanks the covers off and says, hey, wake up. She actually means get up and start getting ready. That, that's the word implies even getting up out of bed. So as Christians, that's the thing. If you're waiting to serve God in your life, that's your problem, (laughs) that you should be serving him in all that you do already. Then he goes on, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And this is a really interesting point. Um, I don't know when Jesus is coming, but I'll tell you what, he's coming now. It'll be quicker than when it was when I started this message. Now he could come back before this message is over. Or he could, you know, whether it's rapture or return, I, I, I think rapture, but <laughs> let's suppose I'm wrong. Then, he, then the return, whatever Jesus wants, he could, he could do this. I just, I'm trying to avoid the subject of, when, of the timing of the eschatology. I'll get into that one of these days, but I want to avoid it for the sake of today's study. Um, but I know this, it's getting close. Now, it may be getting close for me personally, or it might be getting close for us globally. Because... Who knows how long I have? I might have a week. I might have another 80 years. God forbid. <laughs> I won't be teaching. I'm like this tall. Come to the pulpit. My nose is this long. <laughs> I don't want that. Um, it's long enough already. <laughs> but whether I go to him or he comes to me, my time is getting shorter every moment, every day. We become more and more aware of this as, as we age, but we're just becoming aware of what was always the case. Ecclesiastes tries to get this point across. It's like, hey man, serve the Lord now while you're young. Serve the Lord now. 
don't wait, don't delay, don't delay. What's weird is our culture keeps putting off life further and further on. And so that, you know, like we, we've had it where people were, you know, even here in America where people years ago were getting married when they're 15 and they're starting their own farm and they're trekking across the country to, to do Little House on the Prairie stuff. <laughs> and now it's like at the age of 15, we're like, no, we're not giving you a driver's license. Are you insane? You know, <laughs> crazy 15 year old. You know, and, and we keep pushing out adulthood further and further and further, which is, I think, hurting people that are not prepared for life. Hurt me being pushed out further and further was, in my personal opinion, and I, and I do think that this is, this is a biblical reality, but giving young people responsibilities at a young age is a really healthy thing for them. Giving them things to do, be responsible for, um, is a really good thing and, and helps them grow. And pushing off those responsibilities further and further is, is, a, is potentially a very harmful thing. Um, unfortunately. But as a Christian, am I pushing things off? Am I waiting till I'm older, till I know more, till I get more, till I understand more? Instead of serving the Lord with all I've got right now, that's the question. So some people say, this is off. Our salvation is nearer than we first believed. This whole idea is off, that Jesus is coming soon, so you better be ready kind of thing. Because they say, look, it's been 2,000 years. He wrote this 2,000 years ago almost. And you're telling me, oh, salvation is nearer. But to me, this is a bad perspective because the only, the only person that's waited 2,000 years for the coming of Jesus is Jesus, right? You've only been here for like 30 years, 20 years, 50 years. Like you've been here for like this long. So I don't see what you're complaining about. It'll be like, I've been waiting for the Lord for 2,000. No, you haven't. Like nobody's been waiting that long. We've, none of us, no one on earth has waited more than one lifetime for the Lord. That's all he's asked us to wait, right? Then we go to be with him. He's the one that's patient. He's the one that keeps waiting. So for every generation that hears this, it's fresh, it's new. It's be ready for the imminent coming of Jesus, meaning, meaning it will come. Immediate, no, we don't know when. We know God's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But, uh, but I think it's funny when people are like, well, we've been waiting 2,000 years. And I'm like, well, who's we exactly? <laughs> yeah, I, really, that's interesting. Um, so nobody really waits that long individually, except Methuselah. <clears throat> Verse 12, it says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So the night is far spent, meaning that the night has progressed a certain distance, and the night here is being used in a spiritual sense, right? That nighttime is like a time of, of uh, representing spiritual sin, rebellion against God. A, and rebellion against God isn't just living life like you hate God. It's living life like there is no God, right? Like if your kids walk around your house and they act like their parents don't exist, that's called rebellion, and this is, this is the world. The world largely, what I, what I see in modern media, is basically take God out of everything. I mean, there'll even be movies where there's heaven without God. It's like take God out of everything possible. And then you start to see all these, and they're all fake examples. You know, the romances, the relationships we watch on TV, they're fake examples. But they're all, they have one thing in common. They're without God. They're Godless in the actual literal meaning of the phrase. Without God. And so it starts to encourage us to live a godless life too. That's, that's the nighttime. The night is far spent. And the Bible actually gives a somewhat pessimistic view of people. Um, and it's pretty accurate. It's pretty accurate. Now, it's not the whole story. We don't stop there. Some believers, they stop there. They get a pessimistic view of humans and they just, meh, meh, you know, and they stop there. And I go, well, you know why you're stopping there is because you're a human. <laughs> the Bible has a pessimistic view of you as well. 
But that's not the whole story. We're supposed to buckle down because of this. Because of how, how far spent the night is, that, that's reason to buckle down, not give up. So the day is at hand. Um, actually, let me give you a quick, I'll share a quick story. I haven't shared this before, but there's a, um, a, a guy who, he's been in the, in the Calvary Chapel movement for many years. And a pastor is well-known, much more known than I am. I'm not really well-known in Calvary movement at all, <laughs> actually, as far as I know. But... <coughs> But he's very well known in the Calvaries, and he goes around and he basically produces material where he's he's always combating error, which is a dangerous job. If you go around and your whole job is combating error, it can it can do a doozy on you. It can make you kind of dark in your heart. And I, that's something I have to be careful of too, because I, I challenge and deal with a lot of error myself. So I have to make sure that's not all I do, because it just kind of goes bleh. You know, that's all you all you see is error. Spiritual uh, corrections department, you know, <laughs> and. Um, and he, we had a, a conference thing, and they came to our church, and they did a thing at our conference. And this speaker got up, and he was just like, I mean, he literally got up. I could summarize his message, and it was like this. What's the point? It's all, it's down, it's bad, it's just going to keep getting worse. You know, <laughs> it was like the message. And I thought, I went up to him, and I said, what if Jesus doesn't come back for another hundred years? And you've made everyone feel like, we're in the middle of the great apostasy. This is the end. It's all over starting now. What's the point? Just get ready for the coming. And he just said, I don't see how that could be. I don't see how that could be. Because to him, everything was too dark. But let's pause for a minute. How dark do you think things looked during World War II? How dark do you think things looked if you were in Europe in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition? Or the Black Plague? Like, how, how dark have things been? And how many times? And this is the night. Oh, it is far spent. It has progressed far. The day is at hand, but it should never cause us to do anything other than what Paul says here, which is cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light, buckle down, and serve the Lord with all you've got. We can't check out. We've got to, we've got to step up. You know, we're like rescue workers. And when rescue workers see a disaster, they start putting their suit on, their clothes on, they start making calls, and they get out there and help. And that's us as believers. We're here to do something about it. Because the night is far spent, yes, but the day is at hand. So the day being at hand is interesting because the, when the, when the, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but, but some people get up before the sun comes up, right? And uh, I'm just playing. And they, they'll, they'll observe that you actually have the light from the sun before the sun ever crests over the horizon. I like that. So it's like the night's far spent and you have the light of the sun coming and then boom, the sun arrives. So it's as though the church is shining the light of Christ into the world to prepare and give the gospel out to the world for when the sun arrives, pun intended. So we have a pessimistic view of man, but we have an optimistic view of the future. We couldn't hardly get more optimistic as Christians in our view of the future. Every bad thing temporary, every great thing permanent. (laughs) <laughs> and going to get better. Uh, it doesn't get much more optimistic than that. So this should cause action. I should be motivated to go wake up the world, but that is actually not what this passage is about. This passage is not about evangelism. And so often, this is, what, this is where it would go, the preaching. And I've talked about evangelism because it's important, but preaching goes to like, get out there, share your face, share your face, share your face, shine the light, shine the light, shine the light. Uh, but this passage is more like, be the light not just shine it. It's be the light. That's why it says to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Before you wake up the world, you need to wake up yourself. 
Second Peter 3, 10 and 11 says this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let me read that last part again. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? A lot of preaching today would just say, what manner of persons ought you to be in handing out tracts and sharing the gospel? Which is a good thing. We don't want to, I'm not downplaying that. But that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is in godliness in my own personal life. Don't use evangelism and witnessing as a way to avoid your spiritual failings and act like they don't exist. I got to get my life in obedience and submission to God. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, it says. That's, works of darkness are just what? Stuff people do in the dark. The kind of things that happen in the dark. Uh, Pastor Gary tells a story of one time he was, he was working, uh, he was doing like carpentry, which apparently he's really bad at. So I don't know how he got a job doing carpentry, but according to him, <laughs> I haven't seen him do any carpentry. But he, he says he, he went to this bar and he was there to fix something, work on something, but he had to get under a table or something he couldn't see. So he walked over and he flipped the lights on in a bar. And all of a sudden, the patrons all started to leave. They were like, ah, like the cockroaches fleeing. I mean, they're not cockroaches, of course. They're just, maybe they won't even do anything wrong in there. But, but that's what happened because the bar is usually designed, at least many of them are, this one was, to be a dark environment, to be an environment to like sort of allow you to release your inhibitions and, and be that kind of place. And so the, the light coming on just kind of like kills that. It just kills that, you know. Well, the world is in the dark. And, th- and this is, there's a couple of ways the Bible thinks about sin. One is thinking about sin in like very specific acts. And the other is thinking about sin in sort of like broad categories. Um, so specific acts like theft or lying, right? Or calling Mike names. Like these are specific acts of sin. But then there's another way of looking at sin. And that's to just call it like darkness or just rebellion or the flesh. And to just see it as a whole category so that, and, and this kind of protects us from becoming Pharisees about sin, where we, where we nitpick about and try to find ways to make some things okay that really aren't, is to just say, look, is it the flesh or the spirit? Is that of the light or of the dark? And all of a sudden, some of those tough questions about sin get very easy <laughs> when you ask it like that. Um, so let us cast off the works of darkness. And that word cast off means to be done away with or to put away. It's uh, the same word in these verses. Let me read to you other verses that were written in the New Testament that use this exact same Greek word, apatithemi. Um, That's important that you write that down and remember that forever. This is an important word. No, it's not. But Ephesians 4.22, let me read to you other places where they say put off and what we as Christians should put off or cast off. Ephesians 4.22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Ephesians 4.25, therefore putting away, same word, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Colossians 3.8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside or put off, cast off every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
James 1.21, therefore lay aside or put off all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, therefore laying aside or put off all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So I think the point here is that we're to have like zero tolerance policy for sin in our lives. Zero. I'm not here preaching that, that I accomplish sinless perfection. I definitely do not. But I am to have a zero tolerance policy for sin in my life nonetheless. And never is my battle with sin an excuse for my sin at any point. To put off all these things. The tip and the the point here, I think, first is to apply this to you before you ever try to apply it to anybody else. I am not to get out here and go and try to get you to cast off and put off, and I'm going to find your sin and deal with it. Now, there's a place for rebuke and there's a place for correction. It's not always wrong, but what's wrong is being preoccupied with other people to the exclusion of me dealing with my own issues. That's the plank in the eye thing that Jesus warned us about. Then it goes on and says, that's what we cast off or put off, the works of darkness. We put on the armor of light. The armor of light. Do you know that word put on is used in the Bible in other places too? (laughs) So the put off and put on is a theme that we find in the New Testament. To put off certain things, put on other things. This is a good way to think about it when I have sin. It's like, oh, put off anger. Put on patience. Put off cruel words. Put on edifying words. So here's some put on verses. In uh, Ephesians 4.24 it says, And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That was after telling us to put off the old man. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Colossians 3.10 says, And having put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. And so we see not only this put off and put on theme, but also Paul likes to use these armor analogies throughout the scripture. And I don't think we should labor ourselves to worry about how in one place it's the breastplate of righteousness, in another place it's the breastplate of faith and love. It's not so much that that matters about, well, why is the breastplate one and what? It's not, that's not the point. The point is, these are the things we're to be putting on in our lives. That's the point. In, in Romans, the armor that he refers to is the armor of light. Light's interesting because it, light speaks of purity. Light speaks of love and the, the warmth of light and the health and the healing of light. Righteous living, light speaks of righteous living. And I think light also speaks of evangelism because you are the light of the world. So all of that stuff's all wrapped up in this concept. Now, if you are saying, Lord, amen, I hear this verse. Put off, cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Amen, Lord. Go ahead. Do it to me, Lord. Wham, bam, slam, zap me. Just make it happen. Make it happen, God. But it doesn't say, ask God to do this for you. God has already given you of his Holy Spirit. He's already given you an implanted word for you to respond to. He's already enabling you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But at some point you go, put off, put on. And that's a good encouragement for us. This is something that we do. 
Verse 13, here continuing in Romans 13, verse 13, let us walk properly, properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Some people think that the Christian life is like this really like, it's a huge high calling, don't get me wrong. But some people think that it's sort of this over the top thing. That as a Christian, you're, you're, you're acting over the top if you're really following Jesus. Like, whoa, man, good for you. That's good for you that you're doing that, you know. Let me know how that works out. That's crazy, but us normal people, we don't live like that. But the Bible uses this word to talk about the Christian life that is just cast off the word, put on the armor, like all this wonderful commitment to Jesus. And it says, properly. It's just proper. It's just what's right. It's just, this should be normal Christianity right here. Is this sold out, absolutely godly Christian life should be normal. Um, and it pains me that perhaps it's not entirely normal. It's how all of us should be. Then he gives us three sets of things to put off. And that's what you'll notice. Revelry, drunkenness, that's a pair of things. Lewdness and lust, that's a pair. These are grouped together. And then strife and envy, those are also like, a, they're paired together. So these are three sets of things. So I'm going to take them as sets because I think they make more sense that way. Um, revelry and drunkenness has to do with partying. It's an environment where carnality is normal and expected. That word revelry. And it also implies not just like hardcore partying, like people, you know, I mean, like doing that kind of stuff. That, of course, is included. But generally speaking, parties are just extended periods of looking for self-entertainment. That's kind of what they are. And that kind of feels a little convicting. <laughs> that there may be an element of this where partying is just wasting my life away, trying to seek to be entertained constantly. That's what you go to parties for. That's kind of the, the thing. And not that not the entertainment sin. Entertainment is not sinful, and it's fine that to. I think that I don't think there's anything inherently wicked or sinful about deciding to watch TV or go to a movie or something like that. Depending on all the circumstances, of course. But there is a point at which I know I've personally felt very convicted about time I have just thrown away, where I man, I could have been in the Word or I could have been serving the Lord somehow. I could have been doing something productive with that time. There may be an element of that here, but I don't think it's the main focus, but there may be an element of that there. It also mentions drunkenness very specifically. Um, notice the Bible's not not actually against alcohol. The Bible's against drunkenness. And the drunkenness is, in, is a terrible sin in the eyes of God, actually. Drunkenness itself. It's no casual thing. It's no mild thing. And I think anything that has the effect of drunkenness upon me, including pot, is going to be in the same category of wickedness. So that if I'm getting high or drunk, either way, I'm not sober-minded, which is what scripture clearly teaches me to be. And you have no idea how many people were mad at me for saying this out loud. And I'm blown away. How can you possibly... Here, before you get upset at the idea that someone would say that recreational pot smoking is sin, ask yourself this. Is it? <laughs> yes, it is. Because it violates clear scriptural teachings on sobriety. We are called to be sober-minded. So um, definitely Ephesians contrast this with the spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Some people actually take that verse and they go, ah, I'm drunk in the spirit. You are devoid of the spirit. This is not what the scripture says. It con it, so there's comparing and contrasting are two different things. Comparing them means you're saying they're alike. Contrasting means you're saying they're different. The Bible contrasts drunkenness 
with being filled with the Spirit, saying these are very different things. So if someone's filled with the Spirit, they're not acting drunk. If they're acting drunk, they're not filled with the Spirit. That would be the contrast. Um, that's why this fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control, one of the most glorious and wonderful fruits of the Spirit that nobody is actually excited about. <laughs> but it should be really exciting to us. Um, now, so try to catch the vibe of this because it's not trying to just single out individual sins. It's just saying, don't live your life in revelry and drunkenness. Don't live it in partying and, and, and lack of sobriety. This isn't the Christian life. And then cast off also lewdness and lust, this other set of things, lewdness and lust. lust. Now, you might be like, what is lewdness, Mike? Well, let me give you examples of words that you could translate this as other than lewdness and lust. Are you ready? Chambering, wantonness, lasciviousness, sensuality, sexual promiscuity, debauchery, licentiousness. You know what's weird to me is that almost every word to describe sexual sin has been lost from our vocabulary. It's not that the Bible's archaic. It's that we have systematically stopped using words that talk about sexual sin as sexual sin. Now, we talk about sex more than ever before. But we've lost all the words that imply that something's wrong with sort of the, as long as you're two consenting adults, like that, that's not exactly right. You know, that's not morally pure. So chambering, wantonness, lasciviousness, sensuality, sexual promiscuity, these are things where if I was teaching to the teens, I'd have to explain every one of these words and I couldn't use the other ones to explain them because they just aren't taught these things. They're not part of our vocabulary. I think that's interesting. But the general feel between lewdness and lust is this. Lewdness, I think, refers to general sexual immoral acts. Huge blanket term. Anything outside of this male, female, married, that's holy. Everything else is included as not, as lewdness. <clears throat> then lust has, refers to the unchecked desire for pleasure, especially if it's a sexual nature. So really, do you catch the vibe of this? God's like, don't let this, like the scripture says, do not let there be even a hint, even a trace of sexual immorality in and amongst you. A massive thing that we all need to remember. Maybe you have not struggled with revelry and drunkenness, but perhaps lewdness and lust is the thing. You've got to make this your number one priority in life if this is an area where you're failing. You have to cast off the works of darkness so you can put on the armor of light. You won't be able to serve Jesus fully while this is still going on. It's not just adult, it's sin. The world wants to make it like it's for adults. Oh, that's very adult. Adult? Adult is paying your bills and getting a job. Not watching naked people. That's not adult. <laughs> it's just perversion, right? Then finally, it says, <clears throat> not strife and envy. And the third one, it's very different than the first two, right? Revelry and drunkenness, then lewdness and lust, and then finally strife and envy. Strife is referring to division. We don't want to cause division. I want to stand with Christ, but I want to stand as unified as possible with other believers. There are times where unity with Christ causes division with others. That, that's not because you're being divisive. But I should, I should seek to avoid strife and envy. The second one, envy. Envy is a really interesting one. I have a question I, I think that might help us if you struggle with envy to reveal it to yourself so you could just work on this. When other people have a great marriage or they're really knowledgeable in an area or perhaps they have a great skill, especially if it's a skill you have but they have maybe in your eyes more than you or if they have some kind of charisma that you feel you lack or you wish you had, 
<clears throat> do you feel like you have to find something wrong with them? Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember one time someone was talking about Dennis Agajanian. Dennis Agajanian, world-renowned guitar player, great guy, loves the Lord, does a lot of evangelism, stuff like that. And he's he's in the Guinness World Book of Records for being the fastest flat picker. Right? The guy just flat picking, he, he could just go so crazy fast. And it's just like a blur watching him play. <clears throat> and maybe style-wise, it may not be your favorite music, but you, you've got to admit the guy's amazing skills. And... Um, I remember someone, they heard he was playing somewhere nearby and they were like, oh, Dennis Agajani is going to play somewhere. He goes, I could do what he does. I remember hearing him say that. And what struck me was not that he said it because I'm like, dude, he's in the Guinness World Book of Records for how fast he is at what he does. That, that's his thing, right? And you're like, I could do that. And it was just so funny, right? There's like, it's like the armchair, you know, guys, the Monday night quarterback and kind of stuff, um, which none of us will do because we're all missing the Super Bowl. But... <laughs> But what, what really got me, though, is starting to think, why would he feel a need to, like, tear him down? Right? Like, no reason. I'm just going to, I have to have, I have some need to kind of bring him down because he's making me feel small, so I need to make him smaller so I can feel big. So watch this in yourself because I've seen it in me. The need to, to not appreciate the people around me because appreciating them for all that they are makes me feel smaller. That envy is really bad and it kills our unity in Christ. When I can't like love and rejoice in the giftings and the calling and the skills and the abilities that God has given the people around me because they make me feel less. So I start to envy. I wish I had what they have. So I don't want them to have it or at least not around me or whatever. All that kind of thing is actually very dangerous. And it's, and it's kind of like silent in us. It's like it doesn't, you don't know it's happening. Like if someone's drunk, it's pretty obvious, right? I hope usually it's obvious. But with envy is not that obvious. It just, it just rests sort of secretly in the back of someone's heart and mind, polluting their thoughts and creating division. So let's, let's read on verse 14, our last verse tonight. It says, but, but after we cast off the works of darkness, we do all this, we put on the armor of light. We don't uh, have revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy. But verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The heart of this stuff, I remember I said the Bible kind of deals with sin in two different ways. Sometimes it describes it as individual issues. And sometimes it takes a step, step back and talks about the whole idea of sin and the flavor of sin and the concept of it. Here, the heart of righteousness is not being described as individual acts of righteousness, but is being described as just putting on the Lord Jesus. And that, that, that clarifies things for me. I remember struggling with an issue like, is this bad or is this good? Is it okay for me as a Christian to do this or is it not? You know, we, we deal with these issues a lot. You think about it, you wonder about it, and it's good to wrestle with that. And I was thinking, is it wrong? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it right? And then I was just like, if I put on the Lord Jesus, is that going to include this? Nope, nope, no, it's definitely not. And it become very clear to me, and, and this is a healthy thing for us to do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the heart of it. The world does not understand what being like Jesus is actually like. They put G Jesus is basically like a hippie who runs around telling everyone how amazing they are and how much he approves of them. Um, that's the worldly version of Jesus, maybe. But the biblical version, we want to put on the true Lord Jesus, right? The, um, the idea of his character, both loving and holy, his mission to seek and save the lost, and his word to guide and direct our lives. I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't just want to know the Bible. I want to be a Christian in all that I do. 
And then it says, make no provision for the flesh. None. Provisions like a camping term. When you go camping, you bring provisions. You can't really go camping without provisions. You got to bring your backpack and bring your stuff. Sometimes we make provision for the flesh though. In one story, there was a, a kid who, a young guy who told a pastor, hey, pastor, pray for me this weekend. The pastor said, sure, what do you need prayer for? He goes, well, me and my girlfriend, we're going out of town together. We're going to be staying in a hotel room together. So we need to pray for us that we won't fall into sin. <laughs> yes, let me pray for your stupidity first. That's called making provision, right, for the flesh. It's like I'm creating, I'm creating opportunity for myself to stumble. I'm putting stumbling blocks in my own life. That's what this is. So this isn't actually just about sin. It's about provision for sin. So when I put on the Lord Jesus, when I'm walking tight with Christ, the thing that stumbles me isn't sin. It's the provision I create for sin, and then I, and then I fall into the sin. I start making compromises to open a door here, open a door there, create opportunities to fall here and there, getting a little spiritually lazy, I guess. So I'd say look at your life to apply this into your life as I want to do in my life as well. Is, is there anything that gives provision for sin in your life? And, and this is not for us to be, we're not here to get paranoid. We're here to get spiritual clarity. Is there something in my life that's creating provision, opportunity for wickedness? And I keep that thing in my life and it keeps being the same thing I trip up on. Don't laugh at it. Don't minimize it. Don't get sin-ish. Like I didn't totally sin. That would not be the right thing to do. Provision can also mean forethought, which means any sort of preparation in my, in my head for sin. You get to deal with the temptations when they're here, you know, not when they're like fully consuming you. It's, it's kind of like fighting a fire. You want to fight that fire while it's small, when you can stomp it out with your foot. Not when it's big, when it will just set you on fire if you step on it, right? You, you want to stop it right away and that's the deal with sin. At least for me personally, I found that in the struggle against sin, if I deal with temptation right away, it's like no sweat. If I tease it out and play with it in my head or heart at all, it becomes this raging thing. So do you see all this as a rather annoying set of rules? <laughs> is it taxing? You don't want to think about it? Let me just share this for anybody who might be listening, whether it's anybody here in the room or if it may be someone later watching this online. If you feel like all that I'm saying is annoying you, <laughs> that might be because I'm annoying, but it may be for another reason as well. It might be because you're carnal. Um, it's possible that you are trying to vilify the godly calling of a Christian because you don't want to have to do it. So just be mindful of that. To me, that's a little scary. I don't want to use I don't want to use any 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 tactic to minimize the the holiness God calls me to. But some people I've actually seen them use Jesus as their excuse for sin. Have you seen this? Where they go, oh man, I don't worry about all that. Just you know, just go be Jesus to people. Just go be, you're the only Jesus they'll ever know. You're the only Bible they'll ever read. Jesus was holy. Oh, but Jesus partied with sinners. Like, that is not what it says. <laughs> Jesus hung out with tax collectors. You're not applying that correctly. Um, yeah, Jesus had an evangelism relationship with the world. He never, ever compromised one iota of his holiness. And I'm called to put on the Lord Jesus. And that's no small thing. So now here's the thing. Um, when you get this fiery, like high calling of following Jesus, you suddenly become very strict in your walk with Jesus, right? And then you encounter others who may not have the same strictness. And that's what Romans 14 is about. 
So it's as though Romans 14 anticipates the problem of a believer who's like, I'm going to stay as pure as I can and put on the Lord Jesus. But then they encounter other believers who don't have the same convictions as them. So that's what Romans 14 is about. Next week, we'll get into that, talking about how do I handle it when I'm like, well, I can't listen to that music. That music's ungodly. And someone else goes, oh, I don't see anything wrong with this music, man. I feel like I'm putting on the Lord Jesus and I don't have a problem. Well, how do we handle this battle? Can we still fellowship together? You know, or, or really, realistically, we need to start two different churches now, I think, most likely is the, the best solution. No. So let's, uh, let's pray. Um, Father God, we thank you so much for your holy word. And we pray that it would be holy to us in our hearts and minds. We'd see the holiness of our calling. That we would get not just the, the, the rules of, of Christianity, but also the heart and the vibe of living a life that is in the light. Because the days are short. The days are wicked. And we live in a temporary time, a season, where the gospel is going out. It's the time of grace. So we pray, Lord, let us be walking pure. Let us be aware um, even even tonight, tomorrow when we wake up, let us be aware if there's anything we're putting in our own path that's a stumbling block of sin. Let us be freshly aware of the godliness and holiness that Jesus calls us to. We pray that you be glorified in our lives. That we would take care of our, our fellowship with you and, and the righteousness that you're calling us to walk in. Not for salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith. That is made clear throughout the book of Romans. But here we're now being called to step up, to wake up, and we want to answer that call. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.